0: Hi, everybody. This is Kara Fitzgerald. New Frontiers in Functional Medicine is here every month bringing you the best minds in functional medicine. And we would not be able to do this over the years without the generous contributions from our sponsors, Metagenics, Integrative Therapeutics, and Biotics Research. The mission of Metagenics is to lead the movement in making personalized nutritional intervention the standard of care in the treatment and prevention of disease and the promotion of optimal health. For over 30 years, Metagenics has been dedicated to scientific discovery, innovative products, unparalleled quality, education, and practitioner partnerships to support lifestyle functional nutrition. For more information, visit Metagenics at metagenics.com. Biotics Research. For over 40 years, the foundations of biotics research has been innovation and quality. Their goals remain unchanged. Innovative ideas, carefully researched concepts, and product development with advanced analytical and manufacturing techniques. Biotics nutritional products are of superior quality and effectiveness and available exclusively to healthcare professionals. Visit them at BioticsResearch.com. Integrative Therapeutics is focused on inspiring a better lifestyle through better health. By providing meticulously formulated nutritional supplements and valuable resources, Integrative Therapeutics promises to enrich your patients and embolden your practice. Welcome to your Integrative Therapeutics. Find them at integrativepro.com. Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is no exception. Uh, Before I introduce my guests, I just want to say if you like what you're hearing, please consider swinging over to iTunes and leaving us a review. I would be most grateful. So today we are Uh, We're about to dive into a pretty extraordinary conversation and I think it's one that you're going to be really excited about and I look forward to hearing about your experience and thoughts on the topic. I am talking to Dr. Paul Turner, who is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale University, and Dr. Benjamin Chan. He's associate research scientist in ecology and evolutionary biology, also at Yale. Uh, They're right down the street from my mom, in fact, and not far from me here in Sandy Hook. Uh, Both are in uh, Dr. Turner's lab, and their focus is on uh, all things bacteriophage. So all things bacteriophage. If that's a new term to you, you're going to be uh, wikipedia it. <laughs> Actually, I'm going to leave a lot of content. There's a, They've published a lot of papers, uh, so you'll have lots of, of directions, leads to follow in the show notes. But uh, if it's a new term to, to you, I'm going to turn it over to Drs. Turner and Chan to just walk us through what the heck bacteriophages are and why we're extremely interested in them, uh, particularly now.
1: So thanks very much for having us on. And uh, this is Paul Turner. I can tell you very briefly, you in the audience, what a bacteriophage is. So this is a virus, or you can think of them as any virus that is specific to infecting bacterial cells. So we live in a very big biodiverse world of viruses where essentially All organisms have one or certainly very many types of viruses that infect them, but bacteriophages are specific to only infecting bacteria.
0: Okay. All right. That's actually, you answered, in fact, my second question. That's it. They're limited to infecting bacteria. Mm -hmm. Yes. Go ahead. Well, so why are you guys... Focusing so much attention on them, you know, what's why are we thinking about bacteriophages? Um, well, why don't we talk about? Yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead. Give me a little bit of background of what you guys are doing over there.
1: Sure, I'll give a little bit of a, a longer background than even when I was uh, starting my laboratory at Yale, and then I'll let Ben Chan go ahead and talk to you about uh, what we're doing lately. So essentially, I've been fascinated with microbes for my entire, what was it, pushing 40, almost 40-year career. Uh, The point is that bacteriophages are fascinating because they are very biodiverse, like other viruses. They sometimes have only a handful of genes, and yet this is enough to make them very capable of infecting and killing bacteria. And this has been of interest to people in just basic biology as well as biomedicine for a very, very long time, predating antibiotics, and I'm sure we'll get to that eventually. So essentially, I'm just emphasizing that I I find viruses to be fascinating, and my group studies a lot of viruses, including a lot of the the species richness of phages on the planet, and lately for a very particular purpose, which I'm gonna have Ben describe to you. (laughs) Sure.
2: So lately, we've been focusing um, quite a bit of effort on you know isolating and characterizing bacteriophages that target particular pathogenic bacteria Um, Mm -hmm. and so because you know antibiotic resistance is becoming quite a problem yes uh, with rates increasing um and a very notable lack of um of alternatives to these uh, antibiotics and so and you know, not very few new antibiotics or certainly no new classes of antibiotics coming out for a lot of the major gram-negative bacteria. And so, you know, phages are one approach that was sort of tested-ish, you know, maybe a hundred years ago Mm -hmm. and gained a little bit of popularity, which then, you know, disappeared. Um, And and now it's being viewed again as, as a potential um, you know, strategy by which some of these infections could be managed. And that's where we're sort of focusing a lot of our time now.
0: Yeah. Okay. So before we, um, we kind of come forward to what you're doing, what you refer to as pond to bench to bedside. Uh, so it's going to be fun to define that in a minute. Um, first of all, there's zillions of these bacteriophages everywhere. Um, but they were you know historically a guy named um is it Durrell he discovered Felix Durrell who yep. discovered them in the early 1900s but, and, and and you know was they were i mean it was pretty remarkable what they were doing way back in the day um and we were actually doing here in the United States for a period so can you give some of the go through some of that original history
2: um sure so, so they were bacteriophages were discovered in about 1914, um, bought by this Durrell guy um, and also another guy in England named Tward. Um, and you know, this was before chemical antibiotics, for the most part, um, definitely before the discovery of penicillin. Um, and so, you know, with no real uh, antimicrobials around. Um, to treat these infections, they were immediately recognized as a as a potential you know um, treatment and so you know Durell and others started doing some really cool um attempts at, at at finding new phages targeting these bugs and um and had some pretty at least when you look at it some pretty encouraging um, data suggesting that, that this phage therapy thing might might have a real effect on infectious diseases um and then that interest sort of disappeared right um when these broad spectrum chemical antibiotics were found right yeah
1: um
0: let me well yeah so i just wanted to first of all it's interesting that william summer released in 1999 a great biography of felix Durrell. and this book was one of the reasons why i've been bugging you guys for a while to <laughs> I really really was looking forward to talking to you on this podcast but um a friend of mine introduced it to me in medical school years ago you know i think it was in our microbiology class and of course we didn't talk about bacteriophages in microbiology but she on the side said hey you should hear, you should read about these bacteriophages and she passed me Droll's book and indeed it was extraordinary you know and 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 you know we were we we'd been galloping into um uh, antibiotic resistance now for a while, you know, and it's it's so it was particular. It, it struck me as incredibly interesting, but I felt rather powerless. Like what what can we actually do? You know, how can we have access to these? Um, and I'm going to ask you questions. I'm a naturopathic physician, so I'm I'm into uh, how we can, as, as uh, you know, how I can optimize my own health and the health of my patients and eat a great diet. And so I'm going to circle back to you and, and kind of pick your brain on how we might be, um, how we might cultivate, if it's possible at all, uh, sort of a healthy bacteriophage home, if there is such a thing. So I'm going to circle back to those questions, but in the meantime, we're in, we're, we're thinking about, um, Durrell and and at the turn of the century, and um, they uh, one of the things that I looked at when I was reviewing his book again is that they uh, they used phages in for cholera and mm-hmm. um, for typhus. I think you were talking about avian typhus in your paper, and I mean pretty extraordinary infections with good outcome. Oh. Can yeah, you? Th-
1: would... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I, I think that it's pretty amazing that both Twart and Durell realized that they had discovered some kind of a poison that would work against bacteria. And, uh, you know, everybody, uh, I guess, Durrell's a French Canadian and tort is a Brit. And people are, they kind of take sides about who really discovered this. They are, do they really? Yeah, my personal take on it, and perhaps it has something to do with Durrell having a The only academic appointment in his career was at Yale for a few years, so I'm a little biased. But the, the point is, I think Twart saw that I'm visualizing something here, it's a poison against bacteria, but he kind of thought of it seemingly as merely a chemical poison. Whereas Durrell had the insight to think, hey, you know, I can't perhaps see this microbe, it's too small for me to visualize with microscopy of my time. But I think it is an entity. I think it's a biological entity. So essentially, some people would say that Durrell had it more correct when he Mm -hmm. found these phages. But as you alluded to, it became a very short interval between both of these individuals discovering phages and then having the insight to say, hey, wait a minute, why can't this be used to attack a bacterial infection and let me try this out? Yes. And to, to be able to cure cholera in a chicken model, that is exactly what someone like Darrell, uh, this is what he did. You know, It's pretty amazing that decades before Fleming's accidental discovery of antibiotics, penicillin, that essentially these individuals and those who followed in their path were onto something long before we discovered chemical antibiotics.
0: Well, and they actually introduced later, so they started experimenting in animals, and that is probably when they began to uncover that they in fact don't infect humans, mm-hmm. only mm-hmm. bacteria. I guess I mean they they ended over time I guess you un- unfolded that they were really restricted to bacteria or did Durrell figure that out? Dur-
1: yeah, that's that's a very good question actually. That takes a lot of insight but it could be quickly gleaned that I've got this mysterious thing that I'm calling a virus and it is capable of infecting X and killing it being a bacterium, but it seems to be doing no harm at all to the chicken itself, to a human who's ingesting it. And uh, I wanted to say this when you brought it up earlier about, we were essentially living in in a huge ocean of viruses, especially bacteriophages on this planet in the time that your listeners are going to be sitting wherever they are. Listening to this podcast, you know, they're inhaling dust particles just as walking this planet, and undoubtedly those dust particles have viruses adhered to them, and the majority of them are going to be bacteriophages. So they're pretty much inescapable on this planet. You'll see them in water and the food you eat, especially if you like salads. So um, they are everywhere, and the question is, you know, what use? could they be if humans wanted to harness them? And you're already touching on the fact that over a hundred years ago or roughly a hundred years ago, people were seeing the applications of phages. And now uh, that antibiotics are running out of effectiveness, it's sort of launching a whole lot of interest in phage biotechnology,
0: mm-hmm. what they
1: can do biomedically as well as another realm.
0: Well, okay. So I've got a couple questions. I think we just kind of turned the volume. So we were actually researching them in the United States back in the turn of the 19th the 20th century is that right
1: that's
0: right and but then okay so the, then antibiotics kicked in which interestingly i think that you talk about this in one of your papers they were aware way back in the 40s that antibiotic resistance was possible but they still sort of nonetheless dropped everything else and all hands on deck with antibiotics but when we were researching them here, as I, I you know mentioned to you earlier, like Eli Lilly had an over-the-counter bacteriophage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can you talk about that at all? I mean, do, what were they? What was the indication for that? Mm-hmm. Do you know?
1: I, I don't know that too deeply. Um,
0: it's kind of it's just so fascinating to me. Like it was a relatively evolved here for a short period of time.
1: Yeah, you know, I, I have to divulge that part of. this resurgent interest in phages, it it starts to reach back to all kinds of anecdotes. Mm. And you said this earlier, shame on your microbiology instructor for not covering phages, by the way.
0: Yes. uh,
1: But the fact that, uh, you know, so much of this historical relevance is coming to light now. But even people who are highly involved in the work like us, yeah, so kind of a learning curve for us to figure <laughs> out what, what had been done in the past and has been ignored. And maybe we'll get around eventually to talking about the abundant work that has happened in places like uh, in former USSR, USSR yeah. countries and Russia itself and Poland. Yes. And look, a lot of that stuff is still not translated from those languages. Wow. So yeah, amazingly. And I think there's more of an earnest effort now to do it, but right. it's not if every last paper has been translated yet. It's, it's,
0: so it's, it's just this wealth of information. I guess, okay. So what I want to so just kind of thinking about this whole you know Eli Lilly having an over the counter. Apparently, I mean this is what I'm kind of finding as I'm you know surveying things in preparation preparation for our conversation. Um, it, it's you know they're not they're they're pretty specific. Like one bacteriophage for one uh, bacteria. I mean is that is that basically true?
2: Yeah, no, absolutely. It's not even, um, it's even more often, more specific than that, in that, um, you know, a particular phage can't always infect, you know, all strains of a single species.
0: Wow.
2: They're very, very, very specific. So,
0: Um, so if, in fact, the yellow lily did have this product, it would be for an extremely specific indication, like E. coli, urinary tract infections or something.
2: And the way they got around the specificity, um, almost certainly Eli Lilly, and definitely the the Russian and Georgian groups that are still making this uh, phage products, are um, is the, is that they would take a bunch of phages that target these organisms and sort of pool them together into a phage cocktail. Uh.
0: Okay. Yeah. Okay. 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 So then then we we dropped the ball here and put our focus on antibiotics and you know did a lot of amazing things. But as we were doing that, kind of turning our attention elsewhere, as you pointed out, um, Paul, over in USSR, former USSR, they were just galloping ahead in this Mm -hmm. arena, and we have yet to um, sort of uncover and understand all the the work that they've done, and they're still doing, right?
1: Yes, yes, in places like the Eliava Institute, which is in the country of Georgia, they're still doing a lot of great work there, So it's interesting how historically in some places, the interest never faded. Mm -hmm. The fact that in Western medicine, it didn't take off like a rocket, that's really been, uh, you know, you bring this to audiences in the USA, like, wow, I've never heard of this before. (laughs) that's That's right. Because technologically, we've never invested in it. So um, one side note to what you and Ben were just talking about, it is an amazingly biodiverse virus world. I've said that already. I have done some of my work in my career on what makes a virus more specialized and what makes a virus more generalized. And there are examples of viruses that are pretty general and they'll infect other species. And, you know, we deal with this problem in human medicine with emerging viruses that could infect a chimp or something that's even more distantly related to a human, and then they can jump into a human. So I'm only saying that uh, there's a lot of benefits to specificity. If you're going to find a phage that's going to target a kind of set of genotypes of some pathogen, and those are the most important genotypes for, say, a urinary tract infection, then that's awesome. That's good specificity. I don't know that people will, will never discover more broad post-range viruses, though, including phages. I think that we still are at the tip of the iceberg with understanding how virus lifestyles work, what the range of them are, and there could be very generalized phages that we just have not discovered yet. That's my only point here, because I think uh, it may take a very, very long time to eventually stumble upon those if they are very rare in the virus biosphere, but uh, they could exist.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Fascinating. And, it, I, you know, and again, you know, the fact that we can use them as we enter into this antibiotic resistance era and also, you know, in this era of, you know, stealth infection and, you know, the tick-borne infections that can be really tough to treat and move into this chronic state. I mean, obviously interest in other tools that might be safer and, and more specific, even as you look for one that could have broader application. I just, it's just very interesting and extraordinary to me. Mm -hmm. Um, All right, so let's, first actually, I'm gonna just, just for folks again who haven't seen bacteriophages, they look like these little robots. I mean, they're pretty extraordinary appearing and we'll put one on the show notes so you can go take a look. Um, Any comments on that, on their appearance, say relative to other viruses? Yeah,
1: can I comment on that first? Yes, please. one of the things that has long impressed me is in this uh, mostly sub-microscopic world of viruses that you have a lot of differing morphologies. So as you said, some of them look like these lunar landers where their complexity yeah. of that small is kind of amazing. Yes. And yet, in all honesty, some of them have a lot less impressive morphology. They're very, oh, they very blob like you know, or they're just rod-like. So... Uh, <laughs> Iconically, a lot of people visualize bacteriophages by these, uh, these so forms <laughs> that you're going to see. But maybe listeners should know that just as in viruses that infect humans and mammals, other mammals, plants, et cetera, you have a wide range of morphologies. But there are these very compelling ones that look like miniature lunar landers that are they're pretty cool. And those are, those are pretty distinct, uh, yet common enough that they've become iconic.
0: For, yeah. <laughs> back to your right um so talk. let's talk about some of you know what you're doing let's let's go so, so you've come you're how long paul how long has turner lab been at yale since you i guess since you started there back yeah, in early 2000 so after,
1: after a series of postdocs i've had my lab at yale since 2001 so i've been here roughly 20 years
0: and and, uh, and right at just You know, you jumped into bacteriophage research at that time? Well, I was doing
1: first bacteria research as a graduate student with Ritz Lenski, and then I moved into bacteriophage research with my first postdoc in 1995, and that was with uh, Lin Chow when he was at College Park, Maryland. He's now at San Diego. So it was really in about 1995 that I started working on phages, So a bit before I started here.
0: What were you doing specifically?
1: Uh, So mostly what I was doing was using phages and other microbes similar to how people sometimes use Drosophila, just as very rigorous and efficient and powerful systems to test biology questions. And I was essentially doing that kind of work that would have perhaps some applied significance, but... The kind of work we do now is much, much more applied. So yeah. that's how I've changed uh, through my career. Whereas yeah. Ben has been more on the applied side of, especially phage research for some time.
0: Yeah. Okay. So then you, I, I guess you were, pro- you were exposed to their wonderment, even, you know, back in the early 90s, mid 90s, you were aware that they had this potential to be really precise killers of bacteria. And so then you move I mean at some point obviously you jumped over into applied I mean it's just extraordinary so talk about talk to me about that and we can I mean if there's any kind of seminal tales that you have from early early on do share or or we can move right into some of the more current publications you have and experiences but I'm I just really want to hear about these this this pond to bedside sure. <laughs> journey
1: so I'll let then describe that, I'll just say very briefly that my early fascination when I started working with phages was that, at least in the laboratory, if you take a phage that is infecting some bacterium, it's binding to it. This is the way that the phage recognizes that cell type and initiates an infection process. Along the way, as an evolutionary biologist, I came to appreciate clearly the bacteria, if they can, will try to escape that through their own evolution. They're going to try and move away from this predator by changing yeah. to become you know, less of a prey item. So right. that's a lot. That's at the nexus of what we're doing now. And at that time in the mid-90s, I was looking at phage-bacteria interactions and seeing how, wow, you know, some of these changes that the bacteria undergo are so dramatic after you expose them to phages that they either die or you're selecting for these mutants of bacteria that have changed dramatically in their fitness, especially their ability to be pathogens. And so that kind of uh, is one way of casting what we're doing now, which I'm sure Ben can describe. Uh, sure, go for it. <laughs> So wait, so you wanted to move into
0: Well, let me can I just ask a question about that and then Ben I want to just hear some of what you guys are just doing now, some of the some of the how you're applying it. But Paul, like so mm-hmm. the so there so you so so you were you seeing these bacteria become phage resistant? Yes. And that's a problem. That would be a problem potentially oh, in using Yeah, go that's ahead. That's
1: a good question, right? So if you're going to use a phage to attack a bacterium and it kills it and you walk away from that very happy, then fine, you've done your job and the phage has done its job, but we can't be that naive. You know That can work up to a point, but then evolution kicks in. And if there is some mutation that allows the bacteria to escape the phage, then that is what is going to be enriched in that bacterial population. So my point here is that depending on the phage and the target bacterium, if the phage is interacting, with that bacterium by associating with something that is a structure or a mechanism of those bacteria that make them pathogenic, Yes. essentially just exposing them to the phage is going to kill them, but it will also cause their evolution to move generally in a direction that's good for medical treatment. It's going to be pushing the bacteria to do something uh, to become less pathogenic in oh, a way to escape the phage, and I think that that has entirely to do with which phage you choose to use. Got it,
0: got yeah. it. Wow, so wow, that's,
1: essentially, that's the, the main idea that Ben and I have been
0: that's what you guys with. have been tussling with. So, on yeah. one hand, you're killing it, but on another other hand, you're actually in wanting to induce mutations that would reduce the pathogenicity of that particular yeah. bacteria. Yeah.
1: That's called an evolutionary trade-off, and the world is full of them. You know, the evolution <laughs> solves problems, but evolution is not omniscient. You know, you can solve a problem proximally, but it might create kind of a liability in your, you know, your opportunity to do something else. And I always give people the now that people hear my talks often, they're going to be tired of hearing this example. But humans are great apes that walk upright all of the time, and that's great, <laughs> but it also gives us neck pain and lower back pain that yeah. I'm sure that chimps and gorillas don't worry about. So there's all kinds of ways that evolution kind of can take you down a path that is improving your fitness, but it might make you more vulnerable to something else. So if you take phages and you throw them at bacteria, they'll solve that problem if they can through evolution. If you pick the right phage, they're going to solve that problem in a way you want.
0: Yes. Wow. That is- it's ridiculously fascinating. Huh. I can see why, um, you know, you need to spend a lot of time on the bench <laughs> before you yeah, sort of why, jump.
1: Why people like Ben are looking uh, like crazy in the lab is that once we figured this out, I think that it's, there's a fair amount of optimism that you can find phages that'll do this. and Yeah. It's because he's found them.
0: That's extraordinary. And I think we're always, like, my instinct was to think it's a bad thing. If if we're pushing the bacteria to mutate further, it can only lead to some horrible, nefarious outcome. But, in fact, you're turning that entirely upside down. Um, well, can you talk to me? I, I, for instance, I just came up, you know, almost to the day you guys released a really cool um, case report on um, looking at... Um, Pseudomonas aeruginosa in a in a in a graft infection. I mean, and using using phages there. I mean, can you can you talk to me about some of the applied phage work?
2: Sure. Um, yeah. So we're doing a bunch of applied work um, lately, um, and in that particular case, we this gentleman had a standing infection for you know many years that wasn't resolving with standard you know Antimicrobial therapy, um, and we had recently, um, you know, published on a, a, a phage um, that sort of exploits one of these trade-offs that Paul was talking about by either, you know, the bacteria would would be phage sensitive um, but resistant to antibiotics, or once it evolves resistance to the phage, it would be sensitive sensitive to antibiotics, right? And so um, Considering that trade off as, as a potential um, mechanism that we could exploit in treating Pseudomonas infections, at least, um, we deployed that phage um, to try, in addition to antibiotics, to try and treat his infection. And, you know, it, a single application seems to have done the trick, and uh, we, we were able to clear that infection from him. Um, and since that case, um, we, you know, have focused a lot on pulmonary infections, um, Uh especially in in cystic fibrosis, um, where, you know, we're looking at at, at also, again, Pseudomonas aeruginosa um, is a a really common bug in those individuals. Um, And so, you know, we have all these strains um, and, and people with these infections, and we're basically we're going out into nature, into wastewater, into, you know, everywhere, collecting samples, um, and isolating new bacteriophages. And then we're sort of characterizing them in the lab. Um, you know, so we know a bit more about their biology and then we will, you know, find out what the, what receptors are using to infect these bacteria. Um, and then what the bacteria are doing in response to phage selection, right? So bacteria, and phages have been you know battling it out since there were bacteria and so they've come up with, with ways to sort of you know not die from phage infection and um but they want to do this in the cheapest way possible and and often that just is manipulation of a you know surface expressed receptor or something right uh-huh. uh, if we can select the phages like paul was saying that utilize Particular receptors that are important in virulence or antibiotic resistance or hiding yeah. them from the immune system then we're forcing them into a trade-off where they either get killed by phage or you know they're sensitive to antibiotics or they're, they're less likely to cause disease or tissue damage um, and so I think that's been really so far it looks like it's been really successful um, the approach of targeting these virulence factors in Pseudomonas, at least, and other bacteria has been really successful in, in treating these lung infections and that we're slowly able to manipulate the communities of bacteria in the lung um, to either be antibiotic sensitive or, or less virulent. Um, and I think we've, I mean, we've treated several cases now um, and, and so far we're really encouraged by the, by the outcomes.
0: Extraordinary. So you found a single phage that's that that will go after the pseudomonas, um, and and it's going to kill a bunch of them. But those that survive, since you've targeted the mechanism the bacteriophage is using, to, you know, for, to, to to kill the bacteria, it, it, it's a virulence factor. It's a you know it's a receptor that. I guess increases virulence. I'm, I'm sorry if my language around this isn't quite right. Hmm. Then those few that survive are going to select, they survive because they're selecting for no longer having that particular virulence factor.
2: Right. Yeah, basically. I mean, so we have uh, many different phages, right? But, um, but we're using ones that are targeting these virulence factors um, because often the bacteria don't need those virulence hmm. factors to survive, right? Um, and it's it, they're using it to like, you know, further infection or like damage tissue that helps them further infection or sticking to, you know, tissue. And basically if we can, you know, select a population of, of say pseudomonas that can't do that, can no longer adhere to these epithelial cells or can no longer form biofilms, yeah. it should improve the um, the status of, of the individual being treated um, and, and reduce the bacterial burden. For
0: sure. That's awesome. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. If you're enjoying this content, you might want to know about our Functional Medicine Clinic Immersion Programs, available to all qualified practitioners who want to advance their applied clinical skills and build confidence in helping even their toughest cases. Delivered fully online, our program provides live mentorship option, access to our clinic's discussions of real patient cases, teach-ins with expert colleagues, and the opportunity to become part of an engaged and nurturing community of peers. Most importantly, you'll get the support you need to bridge the gap between functional medicine theory and practice. Spaces for a one-year mentorship option are limited, so early application is advised. Please visit drkarafitzgerald.com, choose the Professionals tab, and select Professional Education Programs to find out more about the options available and to apply. And now back to new frontiers in functional medicine. So, um... So the so pseudo, the, so the pseudomonas. I mean, since it seemed it could could actually remain there, but no longer be pathogenic, or right. would you, so it could actually continue to exist in the individual at the site, but it's no longer causing an infection that's significant. Okay. Would you say that's true, or do uh,
2: you- it depends on the the individual, right? So in the case of cystic fibrosis, I think it would be really difficult to have a lung that's, ster- well, in most people, but especially in CF, it's, it's difficult to, to sterilize the lung, I would say. Um, and so if, if the community is gonna be, if, if the lung is always gonna have bacteria, I think our approach has been one that we should at least have a population of bacteria that's you know antibiotic sensitive and um, yeah. less that would
1: cause tissue damage. That's how I like to think about it conceptually, too, is if you can't eradicate every last bacterium, Mm
0: -hmm. then
1: have the ones that are left over be largely avirulent, and therefore they're not really problematic from pathogenicity, and if they get out of control, if you're sort of pushing them into antibiotic sensitivity anyway, then you'll be able to, at least in theory, tackle it with standard, you know, traditional chemical
0: antibiotics. Right. And I'm sure that's happening in some cases, right? I mean, you talk about that in your writing, where yes. this would increase antibiotic response.
1: Yeah, I have to be honest; it's working better than we thought it would.
0: Is because,
1: it? Because I think people, uh, and I'm learning more and more about this all the time. The lung has all these nooks and crannies, and of course, yeah. you would think that there's a lot of you know, in the ecology, you yeah. call this refugia. There's lots of places to hide out. Mm-hmm. So. Um, I think it's an example of if you can go down an alternative therapy route and get a good outcome, it actually then feeds back into more basic research about, well, why is that working so well? So then you start to learn more about your target problem from the standpoint of, oh, I thought that that would be more difficult. And maybe it's, I'm not saying, and I have to be careful, I'm not saying that phage therapy is easy or that it will work in all circumstances. But when you get consistently good outcomes. I think it tells you something more that you might research to get even better outcomes down the road. That's the mm-hmm. point.
0: Mhm. It's pretty, it's just so fascinating. All right, so let me just ask a question. Like how rapid I mean bacteria can mutate really rapidly. Certainly not like human mutations, human evolution. So when might they like what what kind of a time frame are we looking at with exposure to the bacteriophage are they going to you know mutate to you know no virulence well i mean i think if you maybe
2: look at it less like less like a rate and more well i guess that could work but more like a population right so Mm -hmm. we find that maybe one in a hundred thousand to one in a million bacteria in a population would just be will have a mutation present in one of these receptors so that when the whole population is exposed to a phage you know, one in a hundred thousand survive and those ones grow back up and fill up the, the population, right? In the absence yep. of antibiotics or an immune system or something. So, you know, it's quick, like, and it'll happen overnight if you're growing them in a, in a test tube, right? You, you uh-huh. select for phage resistance. Um, in a person, um, it can be a little bit different just because, you know, m- most people have Um, immune systems that are also acting on these bacteria and Mm -hmm. Often, um, you know, they're already on some sort of chemical antibiotic. And so if you just basically tilt the balance of this bacterial population or you know shift the equilibrium a little bit by adding phage targeting a particular virulence factor um, Sometimes this can happen really quick and then the infection can resolve right and it's now more sensitive immune system and antibiotics or whatever Um, But we see, at least if you're looking for hard data, we see like a pretty quick drop in bacteria density, at least in in the pulmonary cases we're treating, Um, in the sputum density of bacteria drops, you know, two to three orders of magnitude um, within about three days.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. So this is really consistent with what Ben is saying, that if it's a mutation that can happen in a bacterial population, it still is going to be relatively rare. And if you are using the phage approach and you're knocking the population down way, you know, to, to the to the point of only these survivors being there, then there could be a synergy with an antibiotic, like we talked about earlier, mm-hmm. such that there are mutants that are escaping phage attack, but they're sensitive to antibiotics. Or maybe it's a manageable enough bacterial load that the immune system can be more effective and helping to clear them out, assuming yeah. they're immune- mutants working properly. Yeah. So it's a numbers game. Uh, but it is, uh, I, I agree with Ben, it's kind of less about rates per se, because bacteria and humans do produce mutations at the same rate. It's just that the bacteria are growing so much faster. And in each generation, when they're copying their DNA, that's at the point that these mutants arise. So you have to consider it as, yeah, if you can get a handle in the laboratory and the expected mutation rate and the spectrum of mutations that should be in response to these phages that we use, then we can be much more accurate with predicting the exact numerical outcome. But the kind of trends, they make sense to me as an evolutionary biologist that this is what is happening in the system.
0: Well, it seems like the turnaround time to actually getting someone better is extraordinarily quick. Mm-hmm.
1: It can be because well, it's a very different approach. All you know?
0: right. Well, let me ask you some, I just want to back up because you said a lot there and I just, I want to color in some of this. So going back to the, the first, this 2018, this March, 2018 publication. And again, folks, I'll list, I'll link this on the show notes. This is from evolution medicine and public health. Um, it was published. Actually it was, I thought it was published. Oh, it was published in March, mm-hmm. um, 2018. Yeah and it's phage treatment of an aortic graft infected with Pseudomonas aeruginosa*. So um, in, this, in this one, uh, how do, I mean, how, how, do, how did you guys introduce the phages? What's the root?
2: Sure. So um, in this particular case, it was um, a rather complicated one, um, as, as maybe your listeners will see if they read the case. Um, but in, in summary, he, this guy had a, um, a Dacron graft for an aortic arch replacement. Um, mm-hmm. And basically it was infected with Pseudomonas at some point. And so he had this infection for four years. Um, and they actually after a couple of years and some, you know, debridements and, and standard treatment, he formed a draining fistula, um, which was in the uh, sort of upper right, upper left quadrant. Um, that was draining, you know, pseudomonas, right? And so basically that basically tracked all the way up to this little um, pocket um, at near the base of this graft, um, base of the aorta, sorry. Um, and, you know, we initially had hoped to just directly access that, that collection of fluid um, with a needle, um, but it was, you know, it was scarred over by the time that we were um, trying to, to do this intervention. And so basically we applied it at the end of the draining fistula instead. Um, and then we, so we just added, you know, a bunch of phage um, plus ceftazidime, and then basically just covered up that, that fistula. And it, it seems like the phage huh. might have tracked their way
1: up there, um, killing huh. the bacteria on the way.
0: Yeah, they Kid must in, have because it worked. Wow. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. It, it
1: seems that there are bacteria throughout the fistula. And it would be like a predator, in a sense, kind of moving upstream yes. towards where more of the prey are located. And that's you know, I don't I'm not trying to be anthropomorphic about it, but I'm trying to let the listeners understand what's happening here. Is that that's literally what can occur. You know, you have these cells being destroyed, and each cell that gets destroyed in the process, you've got hundreds of these new phages being created and being released. So you have this quickly amplifying drug of a sort, this phage, and in the system, it quickly found more bacterial cells that were sensitive to infect of these Pseudomonas aeruginosa target cells and it worked very effectively with one dose.
0: Extraordinary. How did you guys get approval to do this?
1: Sure, so we had permission
2: um, from the FDA to use this phage in a um, emergency use. So they have a mechanism for, you know, Um, emergency um, deployment of phages or or other compounds if, um, you know, current standard of care had not improved the situation. Um, And, you know, and obviously the person being treated is informed and realizes it's experimental medication. Um, So we basically just went through that process and applied through the FDA to do this in an emergency case.
0: Now, one of the things you talk about in the paper that I know is of big interest to our listeners is the fact that you know, a major cause of antibiotic resistance is the development of biofilms, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 I, I this particular phage that you tr- that you chose um, was active against the creation of biofilm in, in this case. Yes.
2: Yeah. So we have a few phages in our library that can either. You know, uh, break down or disrupt biofilms, or can target some of the proteins or sugars or whatever um, necessary for bacteria to sort of, uh, you know, attach to a surface and start producing biofilms. And we can <laughs> interfere with uh, quorum sensing, or, you know, we can, wow. we can manipulate each of these little um, switches to try and mess up biofilms.
1: <laughs> yeah. These have been sort of, uh, they've been seen in the literature. But not in all cases have people worked out the mechanisms okay. to know why phages are better than antibiotics at permeating and kind of disrupting biofilm formation. So, uh, yeah, this, this stuff exists, but as Ben said, we've got lots of phages that show these properties.
0: It's right? extraordinary. I mean, I would say that bio uh, antibiotics seem to be able seem to unfortunately work in, you know, our sort of promote in a biofilm formation because the bacteria want to survive that exposure?
1: Yeah, they, pretty much biofilms are generally impervious to antibiotics. Right. Uh, uh, So that, I I would agree that the presence of antibiotics would therefore select for uh, Yes,
0: biofilm producers.
1: that are more (laughs) resistant to them. So it, yeah, yeah, it's, it's not helping. I think I can easily say that with confidence it's not helping the process right. whereas something like phages and using them should uh, take us to a better better state we think.
0: yeah which is why this man had this infection for four years you know and wasn't responding to standard of care really at yeah. all and the mortality the morbidity and mortality of these graft infections is you know the rates are are high and you know yeah' long
1: There's a lot now. Again, I'm learning along the way with this. There's a lot of surgeries that are rather routine and they involve these artificial substrates going in the human body, you know, felt and Dacron and polypropylene. And that's great. I want my surgeon to be able to work on me very reliably and effectively so that I'm not going to be harmed during the process of a routine surgery. The unfortunate consequence is that this artificial stuff in the human body seems to be particularly good substrate for some bacteria to form biofilms. Yeah. And if those bacteria are pathogenic, and if you have antibiotic resistance increasing in those pathogens, then that's, that's a collision course to, on the one hand, the surgery becoming easier, but the stuff that might colonize that surface is becoming harder to treat. So that's not good news, right? You're sort of, these two trains are running towards each other on a track. and. Yeah better to, to do something to prevent that.
0: So where did you, where did you find the phage for this case? I mean, were you out hunting around? Were you at the Putatuck River here, or the Housatonic, or (laughs) the myriad ponds that dot the, uh, you know, the New Haven, New Haven County where you are? I mean, did you, or did you have it in the lab? I mean, where, how'd you figure it out?
2: So that phage came from a water sample that came from uh, Dodge Pond, which is in Lyme or East yeah, Lyme. I think it's
1: near East Lyme.
2: East Lyme, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so we have, right, I mean, we have water from many of the ponds around here.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, now, some of it, I, I think at that time, I should say there are all kinds of interesting lab groups right down the hall from us. And one of them, David Post's group, They were doing aquatic ecology work in that pond. They study some of the fishes that live in that pond. So we essentially capitalized on some water samples were literally coming to our doorstep because colleagues in our department were bringing them into the building. Uh And at the time, Ben is just searching widely for interesting phages. And it turned out that that one pond near East Lyme, Connecticut, either East Lime or Old Lime, I can't remember which, but the, <laughs> the point is that it's uh, it was a hit. It was a good hit in terms of finding that phage. And uh, yeah. So you never know what you're gonna find.
0: You know? So Ben, so so you were working, you knew this this case existed, they yeah. reached out to you and mm-hmm. you were start you were on the hunt for the appropriate phage.
2: Yeah. So we I mean we had actually this phage. We just didn't quite know the properties of it at the time um, that the case sort of appeared. Um, but yeah, so we had this, and then of course we're always, always, always collecting more and more and more phages. So um, you know, I used the strain from, um, from this individual, and, and we tested this phage and found that it had this cool, um, cool trade-off. Um, and then you know, of course, we we did a bunch of lab experiments to, to verify it and to sort of simulate this treatment. Um, but yeah, it's basically just—it's constantly a hunt, right? So we get sent strains from all over the world for people of all different wow. directions, and we're just always looking for more rage to try and help out.
0: It's amazing. I would imagine you're—you're you're busy. I'm sure people are listening, and either the you know physicians listening want to refer to you, or there's you know individuals listening who've got some sort of chronic infection and are. How do you be? Do people call you up I mean what I mean is this is it a possibility to um, refer to you I mean how how would one access phage therapy
2: sure no absolutely um, so I mean obviously it might not be for everyone right and, we, and
0: mm-hmm. it's really
2: an experimental treatment and you know would have to go through the, the right procedures to make sure that we get permission and that you know current therapy has has been tried and, and failed um, as we're starting to build build this approach into trials here but you um, people call can call me um my number is on the web on, on probably on the website that i sent you okay um, they can email me or you know they can hit me up on instagram or whatever okay um, i'm pretty easy to get a hold of so, awesome
0: yep yeah. awesome that's perfect okay so we'll list all of that in the show notes i so I, i've got some more questions for you i want so going back to cystic fibrosis how are you yep. introducing the phages there
2: um, so it, currently, we're we're treating via nebulizer. So okay,
0: okay, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, cool. Okay, yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm.
2: So just basically, um, we selected that because you know we wanted to get the most phages to the site.
0: Um, yes, seemed
2: so to make sense, and also because people are you know obviously with CF are used to nebulizing, and so it just sort of integrated well with their current treatments.
0: And they and and you only need to sort of you, you is it a single application.
2: And We're treating for once a day for um, a week. Is, is what we're, we're trying to do now. Oh,
0: that's amazing. Now, one of the things that we're thinking about a lot in our world, of course, is the is the predominant microbiome. And and it there is you know a microbiome. I don't know a whole lot about it, but there's a microbiome present in the lung one. And there's a concept that we think about in our. Worlds called colonization resistance where you know we want some of the we want the good guys to outnumber and the the bad guys and just maintain some ecology balance and be you know we want the host to sort of be hospitable so you know there's a nice happy ecosystem and we keep pathogens at bay that way mm-hmm. um are do you think about that in this context like yeah. s- supporting the predominant microbiome or
2: mm-hmm. yeah no definitely i mean it, it, Lungs are a little bit more I think complicated, but we definitely keep that in mind, right? Which is I think why we're targeting virulence factors, right? So we're only targeting the stuff that have these sort of bad proteins or sugars or whatever, right? So yeah. selecting for that environment anyway. Because mm-hmm. you know, this good microbiome is also especially good at, at out competing invaders, right? So if you've already got this healthy microbiome, you can prevent sort of the, some of the Pathogenic bugs from from colonizing, and so definitely we, we try to keep that in mind when we're developing these treatments.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, again, it's just really neat. So you're killing the bad actors, but it's not broad spectrum again. So the good microbiome is there, um, surviving and thriving. So do we? I mean, if you were to take you know, you know we're do, we're to, DNA analysis stool stool analysis using you know PCR, some technology is kind of be, be, becoming bigger in our space. I mean, if, are there a lot of bacteriophages as part of the GI microbiome in humans? I mean,
1: yes. Yeah. And the, the thing is that they have had less attention, but they are certainly there. The, the role they play, you know, if you're talking about a multi species community, Pretty much any microbiome you 've got more than one species of bacteria there. you may not have very, very many, depending on the site of the body. but the point is, you know what phages are there all the time, some of the time, what role might they have in regulating the relative numbers of the of the cells within each of those species in that community? This stuff is still largely in its infancy. There is some terrific work going on. I just uh, I don't think it's a stretch for me to say that the, the, the residents of the microbiome that have received the most attention are the bacteria. Yeah. When, see, when people are doing active work on fungi, viruses, bacteriophages, archaea, I mean, it's
0: happening, right. Right. but I
1: think the, the beauty that we're going to see in the next few years, I don't know how quickly we'll get a enough information from enough locations in the human body to say that we have some confidence in what is a typical microbiome, that's really the problem. Is there a typical microbiome, right? They yes. eat different foods, they have different right. uh, genetics, and you know all this stuff can easily play into it. So that's where I know a lot of terrific people doing microbiome work and at least the ones who I know well and do the fabulous work, they understand that this is a very complex issue. It's not It's not like, oh yeah, here is the standard microbiome for this man in this location of the body as a man and versus sure. a woman sure. or the same. And it's, it's very, it's still a lot of work to be done, but what you alluded to is true. Ideally, we'll get to some point or we have a lot of trust in the ability of a phage or phages to come in and prune out a bad actor from a microbiome. I think we're already already kind of there because it's working. Now, how consistently it'll work from person to person, we're finding that along the way in clinical trials. And uh, so it's a very exciting time, but there's a lot of new research, new discoveries to be made.
0: Yeah, that's right. It's just extraordinary. It's an exciting time for our world, too, where you know, we're kind of early adopters of some of this new kind of higher throughput omic technology, you know, in my fields. But I know, you know, just changing the specimen, you know, just like or t- taking, you know, using a stool specimen may not be the, the best way to actually analyze the microbiome. Actually, there's all sorts of, you know, eco-niches. So wherever you look, you're going to see you know, wildly different. I think complement of organisms. Um, yeah. We like so bacteriophages probably outnumber bacteria. Do you think in the human GI tract? Definitely. Well, yeah, I think it's ten to
1: one everywhere. Well, ten to one everywhere. I, yeah. yeah.
0: Okay. They're, and they're so a lot
1: smaller, right? Yeah. It's easy to outnumber bacteria if you're only a very small fraction of their size.
0: Yes. Right. Right. Well, I would imagine, I mean, we're, we, I mean, they've We're. as research moves forward. We're, we're going, we're, we'll just know better what an integral role they're playing in homeostasis and in health. Would you say that's true?
1: Yeah, I think we'll get more and more knowledge because we're trying, but uh, the real trick is especially what you just said about homeostasis, right? It's, it's easier to study aberrant phenomena mm.
0: than
1: it is to say, oh, now I've got a handle on what is homeostasis and what is, you know, uh, to, to me, I, of course, I'm not an MD. <laughs> I should make sure your listeners know that. But <laughs> that's what fascinates me about medicine is, of course, you turn a lot of attention to when things aren't going well. Right. But that almost by definition causes us to kind of sit back and rest on our laurels about when things are going well. So it's, it's not that easy to get a handle to me on what is the microbiome doing under the most benign and useful circumstances. And I hope that that research goes as quickly. I think I have to express my pessimism. Mm. You know, disease, right. disease hurts.
0: Yes. Mortality,
1: mortality, it gets more attention because it has to.
0: Yeah. So
1: ideally, we're going to see a big push in microbiology and microbiome research and phage research, et cetera, for the basic research of healthy microbiomes. I know it's happening, but I I just kind of assume that more attention is going to the disease state and the aberrant state.
0: Right, right. Well, and that sort of kind of answers at least somewhat my next question. I mean, we're all, everybody's eating their fermented foods or, you know, taking probiotics. They're everywhere. And if we think about wanting to nourish a healthy microbiome, I mean, as far as our, our, our virome, you know, our phages go, there's not really, at this point, you would say there's really not a hell of a lot of research out on how we're going to do that other than probably it is not dissimilar from taking care of our, you know, the, the, a a good bacteria in our gut. Like, you know, I mean, I would imagine eating a good whole foods diet and, You know the the myriad things we know that keeps elimination normal and you know sufficient fiber and so forth. Those things are probably favorably influencing phages.
1: Now, I, however,
0: yeah, okay, (laughs) okay,
1: yeah. It is important to think about. Imagine you've got a healthy microbiome and it's in all the right balance of the equilibrium of species that are present there, and you happen to eat, I don't know, a salad one day that has some mm-hmm. faith on it
0: mm-hmm. that
1: into your gastrointestinal system sometimes you know, it can make it through to to the site where it would affect this microbiome by pruning something out that should be there right i mean yeah. that's possible and the question is whether that's already happening in ibd
0: right
1: in bowel syndrome or something you know what What is it when people see an overabundance of some phages associated with IBD? Is that because they've chased out something that should be there or what is going on? Right. So I, I think that uh, from the standpoint of phages entering into systems and disrupting them to mess up equilibria, I have to be fair in saying that that's a possibility too.
0: Possibility. Okay. Yeah. Well then on that question, I know we've got to wrap up here, but I've just, I just have so many questions. Like, are there contraindications for phage therapy?
2: Hmm. Um, not really, right? So they should work, they should not impact negatively um, any of the current antimicrobials that are out there. But, and as far as we can tell, they can be used anything, but you know, we still are looking at that and and need to figure it out more. But, Mm -hmm. um, at this point we, we don't see any reason that there should be any.
0: Okay. And any side effects?
2: None, none that we've observed, um, with, with clean preps of phages, um, -hmm. perfectly safe as far as we can tell.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. What people have to be careful of is this is what Ben's alluding to. If you prep phages for use in humans, you have to make sure that in your prep, it doesn't have some toxins that were present that were in the cells that were destroyed as you made the phages.
0: Ah, uh, right.
1: They would be there, and you would be delivering them by mistake to the patient and right. perhaps doing them harm. So you have to be careful that the prep is clean. And uh, so those who are doing this work carefully are super attentive to that. And my hope is that everybody's doing it carefully.
0: Right, 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 right. So that could be a compromised sample could be a a huge problem Mm -hmm. especially if you're introducing it into somebody who's really vulnerable you know
1: um
0: what do you guys so let me just what about uh you know some of these kind of like people who move into sort of chronic Lyme or some of the co-infections in you know tick-borne co-infections that can be really hellacious these days have you used phage therapy in these populations at all no no,
2: okay. A lot of those bugs, are, are, are we don't work with those um, necessarily, but um, the phages definitely exist for Borrelia and, and a lot of these sort of tick-borne bacteria, um, and, and maybe there's a feature there for phages. Um, yeah, I
1: don't know. Okay. Yeah, I think what you're speaking to is that there is a lot of optimism based on this recent success that we've had in others that you pick a favorite target, you use this approach, and maybe you can get somewhere. Yeah, I think that that is a reason for optimism. What we've learned is that it is hard to go after all these targets. So I love speaking about this research. I'm sure Ben, same thing. And inevitably, any talk I give, especially if it's an MD, they're going to just raise their hand and talk about their favorite problem. Yes, yes, yes. That's awesome. It means right. I got them excited about this potential, but uh, this is where we should be, educating people to do more of this work in a useful way and kind of spreading that wave outward, you know, get, get, because we cannot do it all. We'd love to do it all, but we can't do it all. Right. And, and yet, I do stand by the fact that phage bacteria work is not super, super expensive. Right? We teach courses to undergraduates that get them involved in this work by literally learning the tools in the classroom as first-year students with no prior research experience.
0: Huh.
1: So this is very effective as sort of a, a gateway to doing independent research in the United States, especially through a course that was developed at University of Pittsburgh by Graham Hatful, and it has spread throughout the United States. So I... I literally think that there's like a new generation of scientists right now in the USA that have cut their teeth on research by exploring phages. And you're gonna hear more and more about this in the coming years. So what is my point here is that the, the wave outward I think is already happening. So you have young people who are doing this work, they're seeing the work that Ben and I and others do and they're like, oh wow, not only did I learn this in that super cool lab course, But Those those at Yale and elsewhere, they're actually doing this to try emergency treatment in patients and kickstart clinical trials. And I will tell you, it's not that the techniques that they learned in the classroom are not that different at all from what we're doing. And I see a lot of potential for for young people to get involved in this and for scientists of the future to do this work.
0: So you can, you can once you identify them in the lab, like let's go back to the graft case with Pseudomonas, you can then just maintain that uh, sort of a little colony of those bacteriophages, for, specific for that Pseudomonas aeruginosa?
2: Yeah, I mean, we have, we basically just have hundreds of phages just sitting in the fridge um, they, they're pretty stable, and they just sit in liquid until we need them.
1: Okay. Hey, you can keep them in the fridge. You can keep them in the freezer. There's a way of freeze-drying Interesting. Putting them on a shelf. So I think there's a lot of potential in places that don't have a lot of refrigeration or even electricity that you might be able to keep. These hey. around. And that's happening. I mean, just to be clear, I mean, you, you can go to places, and they've got these freeze-dried forms of phages for you to purchase in a pharmacy without a yeah. prescription
0: but that's right. a, different, a different day. Right, right, right. I so it seems like for biggest for efficacy you've got to deliver it to the site of infection. I know that phages are you can purchase OTC phages now in this country in in a probiotic combination and you'll I I am do, do 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 you have any thoughts on those? I mean it's have you thought about that at all? I mean if um, if you're trying yeah, go ahead. Go ahead, Ben. I
2: haven't thought much about them. I mean, I've seen them and, and I guess I've heard people have bought them, but I
1: don't know much about them.
0: Okay. Wait, is right. your,
1: your question is not about delivery? Though? Well,
0: you- I guess it was, I guess it kind of was. I'll, I, I didn't I sort of sandwich two things together you so far in the two cases that you've discussed you had to really deliver them right to the site you know in the lungs you nebulized nebulize it but if yeah. you're taking so there's i know that there are e coli specific um phage phages available in in probiotics but if you're actually using it to treat a uti and you take it orally in a probiotic capsule i'm guessing that that might not actually that the, the phages might not reach the well, ur- I- right
1: I think actually you're highlighting a very uh, core interesting thing that's going on in phage biotechnology right now. If, if you want to use phages for a particular purpose, how do you deliver them? And if you're tra- targeting the lung, you're targeting the intestine, you're targeting, you know, whatever, what's the best way of getting them there? And I think frankly, there might be multiple routes. Okay. And, you know, if it's just brute force intravenous I don't know that that's always going to be a good idea right lots of ways that people are thinking of doing this but you're you're hitting on the core thing is that it deserves greater attention and research because of course you want to deliver it in the easiest way possible the most yes. way so we'd we figure it out
0: you know, I have one more comment. It's way too long, but it's so interesting. One more comment. As I was think, as I was preparing to chat with you guys, I was thinking about, you know, these autoimmune, these these microbial triggered autoimmune diseases, and the one that came to my mind that I think there's some decent science around is rheumatoid arthritis, where we know um, *P. gingivalis* and of the oral mic- a pathogen in the oral oral microbiome can actually trigger rheumatoid arthritis and the production of of anti-CCP antibodies, which they're fundamental to it, and also proteus mirabilis, which can exist in the urinary tract, can trigger RA in in production of autoantibodies in susceptible individuals. And it just seemed extraordinary to me that one might be able to turn off RA potentially with using phage therapy against these, these two bacteria
1: yeah i I think you're seizing on exactly what the promise of phage therapy could be
0: yeah if
1: you can i if you know enough from research that tells you the presence of something in the oral microbial community sets you for a higher risk of something that may be a decade in the future
0: yes the
1: <laughs> whether you can prune it out now right that's against the future I mean I think that that isn't that cool cool right i mean you can, yes. you can
0: think about
1: that but we're in its infancy right to, to know whether that could be effectively done in just any old person
0: right well it'd have to be somebody who's genetically susceptible you know right. to yeah but so and then you'd have to identify that as initially but it, i mean uh, yeah it's just very interesting well thank you so much for joining me today new frontiers i've just it's just been um fabulous talking to the both of you. I appreciate your work and, you know, look forward to, you know, just seeing what unfolds over there at Turner Lab.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: And that wraps up another amazing conversation with a great mind in functional medicine. I am so glad that you could join me. None of this would be possible through the years without our generous wonderful sponsors, including Integrative Therapeutics, Metagenics, and Biotics. These are companies that I trust and I use with my patients every single day. Visit them at integrativepro.com, bioticsresearch.com, and metagenics.com. Please tell them that I sent you and thank them for making New Frontiers in Functional Medicine possible. And one more thing, leave a review and a thumbs up on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you're hearing my voice. Um, These kind of comments will promote New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, getting the word on functional medicine out there to the greater community. And for that, I thank you. Until next time.